In our text is only three verses. We'll be coming back to Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Luke 19 primarily. But in John 19, verses 17 through 19, we read, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. With that, I want to take us back to last Sunday, which was Palm Sunday, and um, have you begin by turning back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And in Luke chapter 19 is where we had our, our study from on Sunday. Of course, it's a triumphal entry. And Luke 19, pick it up in verses 37. And we had the reason for the multitudes that we talked about, remember, was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And many Jews, um, even the religious leaders, believed And because of that, we read in verse 37 that there was great multitudes. Luke 19, verse 37 says, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitudes, and I want you to underline that, that the whole multitudes of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That was a little less, not even a week is going to go by from Palm Sunday till when Jesus was crucified at Golgotha. With that, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. And mind you, this is less than a week's time And in Matthew 27, picking it up in verse 15, we're told now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And they had there a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with this just man. For I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now verse 20 is very important that you catch this. But the chief priests and the elders, notice, persuaded the multitudes. Here we have the multitudes again. And they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So we have, in verse, pick it up, I want to continue on through. um, The governor answered and and said to them, well, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. And Pilate said, well, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? Notice the word all, I have it underlined. They all said to him, let him be crucified. Who is saying this? The multitudes that had been persuaded by the chief priests. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the louder saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, you see to it. And again, I have it underlined, and all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. All right, we're talking less than a week from the multitudes hailing him, rejoicing, and in less than a week's time, we've gone from these cheers of Hosanna, save now, to these jeers of crucify him. And um, 
talk about the fickleness of people going from these cheers to jeers in just a couple days period of time. Now, let's turn to Mark. It's going to be, we're going to be looking at um, all three of the, all four of the Gospels. And in Mark chapter 15, we'll look at one verse 22. It tells us, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Now, I've been to Israel many times, and I'm going to have that put on a screen now. Um, I'm going to make several references to Golgotha this morning. Uh, This is an older picture. Unfortunately, the erosion of time has taken away the bridge between the eyes, that narrow section there. And, but here, the reason it's the translation of Golgotha is the place of a skull. It's, it's a landmark that um, sticks out uh, to this day. So that Mark is the one that tells us um, that Golgotha, the meaning of that is the skull. And if you go to verses 23 through 25, It says, they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now Mark gives us here the time that this happened. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. This tells us that Jesus was crucified at nine o'clock in the morning. The third hour um, in Judaism would have been nine o'clock in the morning. So with uh, that, let's go back to our text with a little bit of that background and pick up um, John chapter 19, verse 19, where it talks about Pilate, and he wrote and put, put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read the title from the place where Jesus was crucified near the city and it was written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek and it was written in Latin. And the chief priest didn't like it and the Jews said to him, to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And it was written in Hebrew, that would have been the language of religion It was written in Greek, that would have been the language of culture and education. It was written in Latin, the language of law and order. Thus, it was written for the whole world to see that he died for all. This is the gospel that is to be preached to the world. This is the hope of the world. In a period of time in our world, as I speak, this Palm Palm Sunday, uh, this Good Friday 2020, or it's unprecedented. We've never had a time like this before. And if ever there was a time where we need hope, it's now. So we have the hope of the gospel that there's a whole lot more um, than this world. And the focal point of all human history actually comes down to this event. Probably the most important event that ever took place in world history. It says in verse 23 and 24 that they divided, they cast lots um, that the scripture might be fulfilled for this tunic that he had. And um, again, we want to point out every time there's prophecy to point it out. And they are quoting here Psalm 22 verse 18 if you're taking notes. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. In other words, this fulfills Psalm 22. Uh, what we're going to find out as we make our way through the study, there's more detail about the suffering that the Lord went through in Psalm 22 than actually we have in all four of the Gospels. Now, Jesus makes seven statements for those six hours that he was on the cross. And we're going to go through them this afternoon. The first one, again, we find back in Luke 
chapter 23, so I'm going to have you flip back there real quick. Luke 23, draw your attention to verse 34. I just mentioned that the casting lots was fulfilled from Psalm 22. Well, this is how Psalm 22 begins. Verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Of the seven things that Jesus said from the cross, we find this was the first one. Uh, Verse 33 tells us at this place here, if you go back up to verse 33, when they had come to the place called Calvary. Well, I wanted to just go there because it's also called Golgotha, the place of the skull. But it's also called Calvary. We're called Calvary Chapel. We're called Calvary Chapel because we feel this is what the gospel is really all about. And we take the name of our, our fellowship here, along with many other hundreds around the world that are called Calvary. We get it from this verse here, verse 33. And um, the first words that the Lord says is, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. This is how Psalm 22, the very first verse, begins. I think about this when I, when I hear people that don't know the Lord, it's very easy for them to take the name of the Lord in vain. I cringe when it happens. And I think of this saying here. I think in my head. I go, Lord, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're saying. Why Jesus? Why not, oh, Allah, or oh, Buddha, or who, whatever. No, they take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a swear word. Take it in vain. And all I can think of is, boy, if you had any idea <laughs> who, what you're saying when you take the name of the Lord in vain. That was for sure the first thing that went when I was saved many, many years ago. Um, the language was cleaned up real quick. And at one time, I did take the name of the Lord in vain, but I couldn't get it out. If I found myself getting upset, I'd actually, I'd say, Jesus, and that's all the farther it could go because of the conviction of the preciousness of that name. What in the world do you think you're, you're doing? So the vulgarity was the first thing that was left. And here they had no idea what they were doing. So what does the Lord say? Father, forgive them. They just don't know. They don't have a clue what's taking place here. Well, that's the first statement. The second statement we find in Luke 23. Let's look at verses 39 uh, through 43. It says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, don't you even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The second thing that is recorded in the Gospels is in verse 43. And Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now I'm going to touch more on this on Sunday. So I'm not going to get into a lot of detail right now except to say he didn't say heaven. He said paradise. Because I believe that if he was going to be, um, we know that between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, there's a three-day period of time. Uh, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of, of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what was he doing there? And we'll talk more about that on Sunday. But he says today, so it could have been heaven, it had to be this other place that we call Abraham's bosom. And again, we'll get to, into more detail that on Sunday. This was the Lord's second statement from the cross. The first statement, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. 
Our Lord just prayed for his enemies. In his second statement, he turned to a repentant sinner and gave him the assurance that he was going to heaven eventually. Three days later, consider the amazing aspect of this man's conversion. Now, I always encourage people, if they have a person that's on their deathbed, and their attitude is, I'm not going to be a hypocrite now. I've been a heathen my whole life. Why should, I, why should I be a hypocrite now and become a Christian? And we are to be ready in season and out of season. Can I get an amen from somebody out there? I think I heard that. And this to me is a, the perfect way to witness to a person who has that attitude. Well, you tell them the reality is you don't have any idea what you're talking about. He said, well, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I said, the thief, and if I'm in that situation, um, look what this man had going for him. He was never baptized. Um, he had no good works. He was a criminal. Never said the sinner's prayer. This is what I call a deathbed conversion. Something happened in his heart. And it wasn't the words that meant anything. Is that he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He called him what? He called him Lord. Just like the woman who was caught in adultery. She have any good works? None at all. She was a prostitute. And um, uh, when they sought to bring accusations and accuse her, the Lord got rid of them one by one. And he looks at the woman and says, where are your accusers? She says, none here, Lord. And she recognized um, who he was. No sinner's prayer, no good works. She was a prostitute. But she said, none here, Lord. And the Lord says, and neither do I condemn you. He didn't condone the sin. He says, go and sin no more. And she um, I believe we'll see that gal in heaven someday. The third statement from the cross we find, we have to go back to John again, John chapter 19. John 19, verses 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother And the disciple whom loved, he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Evidently, John had his own home. And he took care of of Mary. Now, This is interesting to me because Jesus calls her not mother but Mary. He calls her woman. Just as he did in John 2 at the wedding of Cana. His hour had come. Now we're in the Gospel of John and I make the point of saying that Jesus said this seven times in John's Gospel. The first time was in John 2. And um, of course Mary wanted to be vindicated because nobody believed the story that she was born of a virgin and she had a child and she lived with that reputation. And so she believes that he is and um, but he addresses her at Cana also as woman. His hour now had come. He is to die but he will rise again. He is to be glorified His relationship to his mother is to be severed, to her as well as to us. He is to be the glorified Christ. His resurrection will clear her name forever. Her reputation will be vindicated. But she must come to Christ in faith just as every other believer comes. While he is dying for the sins of the world, he will not neglect her, we know that Mary will be praying with, with the disciples in the upper room after the resurrection. If you're taking notes, that's Acts chapter one, verse 14. And after that, she simply drops out of the picture. 
As long as she lived, John would keep her in his home and care for her as the Lord Jesus asked him to do. I would add this about Mary. The last words recorded in the Bible concerning Mary, we don't know what happened to Joseph, but the last words that are recorded that she said was whatever he says, do it. That's the last recorded words of Mary. So that was the the third statement. The fourth one, we have to go back to Matthew chapter 27 and picking it up in verses 45 and 46. Matthew 27, verse 45, this is the fourth statement. Now when the sixth hour, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that will be from noon till three, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, la, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in one of the songs that we sang today. God rejecting God was one of the lines that caught my attention. God rejecting God. When they had crucified Jesus, no gospel writer describes the death of Christ. There are things about the cross and the crucifixion that are hidden from us. God pulls down a veil on many of the details. Darkness covered the land so that people couldn't see. First of all, God is not going to give us morbid details simply to satisfy satisfy our idle curiosity. Secondly, there was a transaction between the father and the son taking place there. It was a transaction for the sins of the world which is beyond our comprehension. That's for sure. The only thing that we can do is to accept by faith the forgiveness that is made ours through Christ's death on the cross. This is the only way you and I will ever penetrate that darkness. And I think on this and just the magnitude of this event because you see they have always been. I could conceive eternal life but I can't conceive and wrap my head around something always being. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have always been. There has never been a moment throughout eternity except right here. And when it happened, he was rejected, he was forsaken, but he had to because he couldn't look upon sin. The holiness of our creator uh, had to turn away. And here, um, the Lord has to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, he knew all too well that his hour had come but when the moment took place, how do you put that into words? That separation. We only have this, this forced statement from the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says this, as far as the father was concerned at this moment. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. The fourth statement. The fifth one, we have to go back to John's gospel again, John chapter 19. This one is in verse 28. And it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, again, prophecy here, says, I thirst. And this is fulfilling. And this, this one I want, would like you to turn to with me. Would you please turn to Psalm 22? Again, we already mentioned that it began with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in Psalm 22, verses 14 and 15, it's more descriptive. It tells us more of the suffering that he went through. In the Gospels, it just tells us this one thing, I thirst. But if you look at verse 14, 
of Psalm 22. He says, I'm poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. We don't read that at all in the New Testament. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like pot shred, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. So here, David, writing this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually gives us more detail than any of the four gospel writers, the suffering that the Lord went through. Now, let's go back to John chapter 19 for the sixth thing that the Lord said from the cross. Let me draw your attention. John 19, verse 30. Well, after he thirsted, let's read verse 29. He said, I thirst. Now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with the sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it up to his mouth. Uh, The reason for this is his tongue was stuck to the top of his mouth. And that moisture evidently was enough to free him up to be able to say this in verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. When you compare the gospel records, all four of them, you'll discover that he shouted this statement with a loud voice. He cried, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He was only 33 years old. At the age of 33, most people are saying, it's the beginning. But at the age of about 33, Jesus was saying, it is finished. He did not say, I am finished. It was not a cry of defeat. It was a shout of victory. In the Greek language in which John wrote this statement was one word with 10 letters, tetelestai. Perhaps that is a new word to you. It means it is finished. It stands finished and it always will be finished. Another way of saying paid in full. It was a victory cry. It wasn't one of of defeat. And actually, um, a couple things strike me here. We're gonna find out in a little bit that they're gonna, um, the Sabbath is approaching, it's getting dark. It's now three o'clock in the afternoon. And um, you could stay on the cross for days. So what they did is they broke the legs of the other two and they were gonna do that to Jesus but they came and found that he was already dead. And to make sure that he was, they put a spear in his, in his side and water and blood came out. And so we knew he was dead. But I wanna take you back, this is this victory. The other thing that strikes me is he himself dismissed his spirit. He says, it's over now. My work is done. And he said, spirit, you're dismissed. And he dismissed his spirit. And let's go back to the very, very first prophecy of the crucifixion. You may not remember this, but let's go back to the book of Genesis, chapter three. After the serpent had deceived Eve in eating of the forbidden fruit, um, there's judgments placed upon the serpent, on the woman, and on Adam. I'm interested in the judgment that the Lord placed upon the serpent. It's in Genesis 3, verse 14. He said, so the Lord said to the servant, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now verse 15. This is the first prophecy in the Bible and it's a prophecy about the cross and Calvary. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. The he is a reference to Jesus. And you shall bruise his heel. 
The beating that the Lord took, the bruising, is well recorded for us in Isaiah 52, I believe, verse 54, if I remember right, that he was beaten and marred more than any man. But the victory where he shall bruise your head was where he now defeated the God of this world. It was accomplished. It says all things are now put under Jesus' feet because the battle's over. Victory's done. Except in the New Testament it says we don't see all things under his feet yet. In other words, the kingdom age isn't here. I'm glad, I don't know about you, because, because of that it extended a whole new season called the age of grace and the church age. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. This has been going on for 2,000 years. But the time is coming when the Lord is gonna say, that's enough. And as I look at the world today, I wonder how much more the Lord's gonna put up with all this stuff. And um, it makes us pray, as the last couple verses in the book of Revelation says, even so, come Lord Jesus. There's another good place for an amen. (laughs) And it it makes you homesick. and I just had enough with the world. And yet at the same time, it says the Lord is not willing that any should perish. He's being long-suffering. I want to put up with this much. But every time a day goes by, I think a lot of what's happening in the world today, I talked about it Sunday, is just shaking people up, trying to get their attention. That they rethink, um, that they have to be pulled out of their busyness and all that they're doing. And just for a moment, think, what if this is really real? What if there really is an eternity? What if there really is a heaven? What if there really is a hell? And a lot of times it it isn't until we have difficulty, like Job. um, Didn't ask the hard questions until he lost it all in one day. Lost his financial gain, seven sons, three daughters, They're all taken in one day. Then, only then, was the question asked by Job, if a man dies, will he live again? And I can't help but think that the Lord is using a lot of this, what's taking place in the world today, this coronavirus, that he is just trying to get people's attention. I'm kind of hoping this is the last Good Friday we'll ever do. Another good place for an amen. <laughs> and, um, but yet, I understand um, the Lord's not willing that any should perish. And he's just being long patient, certainly a lot more long patient than you and I. Let's look at the last one. We find it in Luke. Let's go back to Luke chapter 23. This is the seventh statement. We're looking at verses 45 and 46. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. We'll be looking at that a little bit more on Sunday. And when Jesus had cried out, and here's with a loud voice, earlier we read it, it is finished. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, He breathed his last. You're not really prepared to live unless you're prepared to die. Much of what goes on in this world is a battle against death. Death is going to come. It's an appointment. And only God knows the hour. That's why it's wonderful to be a Christian, to know Jesus as your Savior, so that having confidence, we do not worry about death. Jesus' seventh statement from the cross tells us about death and how he died. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. I'm gonna ask you to turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 53 at this time. What we've just gone through this Good Friday is the teaching of Calvary. 
the events that took place. 33 prophecies, interesting number, are fulfilled on this day. He was 33 years old when he died. That's the teaching. Um, But we also have an Old Testament picture of this. But before we go there, I want to stop briefly at, at Isaiah 53 and read verse 11 and 12. And this is the father speaking, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Now I want you to point out here, it doesn't say all, it says many. Because you have to make a choice. Uh, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But we all know people who haven't. And for one reason or another, John tells us in John 3, they don't do it because they love the darkness more than they love the light, and that's why they they don't come to the light. Then he goes on to say, and he shall bear their iniquities. Of all, no, but many. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, that would be the two thieves, and he bore the sins of many, again, not all, and he made intercession for the transgressor. Go with me to Genesis chapter 22. We like to say for every New Testament teaching, we have an Old Testament picture. And I'm gonna verify that statement because I think it's dangerous to spiritualize scripture unless it's actually verified by itself in the New Testament. In Genesis 22, the first 14 verses, Um, we have another father. It's a test, we're told in verse one. So if you're in Genesis 22, it says it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, and, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What strikes me here is Abraham says, say what? What did you say? We don't have any of that. Matter of fact, in the next couple of verses, we have a continuation of continual action on Abraham's part. So Abraham rose early in the morning, number one. He saddled his donkey, number two. He took two of his young men with him, three, and Isaac, his son, and, notice, and split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. There was no argument with Abraham. And we're gonna find out later that Abraham already knows what's about to take place. But I'm gonna show you that from the New Testament. Now, verse four Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. In the heart of this man, he's on a three-day journey, but as far as he's concerned, his son is already dead. So it was with Jesus, as three days, he was in the heart of the earth. And Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I'll go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Now, I believe he knew that ahead of time, even though I also believe that he realizes he's going to offer him. So Abraham took the wood on the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac. Of course, the parallel would be that it was the the cross that was laid upon Jesus, Here the wood is placed upon Isaac. So Isaac becomes a type of the Lord. And he took the fire in his hand with a knife, and the two of them went together. Um, Isaac just didn't argue with his father. He he didn't say, hey, just wait a minute, old man. 
what do you think's going on here? No, they went in agreement. But Isaac spoke to his, Abraham, his father, and he said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, look, the fire and the wood, but, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself. Now, I need to stop here. And if you have the old King James, uh, you have a better translation than my new King James. I prefer the new King James because I believe there's many more translations that are better, better translated than the King James, but not here. What this says in my Bible, in the new King James, is Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself. In the King James, the article four isn't there. It says, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And that changes everything. And the two of them went together, again, in agreement. And then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And of course, the picture is clear. Jesus was laid on the cross. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Now verse 14 is why we came here. It's the picture. Then Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, when we visit Israel, and the guides always tell us, and the rabbis, that the place that Abraham offered Isaac is on the Temple Mount. And that's why it's so important to them. Um, I don't believe that was the case at all. I believe that the place mentioned here, the Mount of the Lord, which is where? Well, we'll go back to verse Two, to the land of Moriah. There are different mountains around Jerusalem, Mount Scopus, Mount of Olives, Mount Zion, but then there's Mount Moriah. It begins at the Temple Mount, okay? It's 742 meters above sea level. Now, if you're gonna have an offering, they usually would, they refer to the high places where they made offerings. He, he wouldn't even have been halfway up the hill with Isaac. I believe he went to the highest place, which would be a place that we call Golgotha. We call it the place of the skull. It's the same place that Jesus was crucified. I believe this prophecy here, it shall be seen in the Mount of the Lord. Where? On Mount Moriah. It's just interesting to me, 33 prophecies fulfilled. Jesus was 33. It's 777 meters above sea level. What is the top of Mount Moriah? And that's where I believe this event took place. Now, in closing this um, this afternoon, I'd like you to turn to the book of Hebrews. I told you that we had a New Testament teaching, but is it really an Old Testament picture of the cross and a picture? Well, according to Hebrews it is, Because we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 and 18, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Notice this, accounting that God was able to raise him even from the dead, from 
from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Well, what does that mean, figurative sense? It's another way of saying it's a picture. A picture of what? A picture of another father who would go through with it. Abraham, you've passed the test and you've proven your love for me. But what this tells us is that Abraham understood the gospel. He understood that he was going to offer him, but he would raise him from the dead. He understood the gospel that was being laid out to him. And so in this case, it was absolute certainty. This, what took place 2,000 years ago when the sun refused to shine and the sins of the world were placed upon Jesus. When that all happened, um, time stood still and the most amazing event in the world took place. And Abraham knew all about it, that he was doing something in a figurative sense. He was painting a picture. And so for certainty, we can say in this case, the study on the seven sayings from the cross, we have a picture of it in the Old Testament. Oh, the complexity of this book and how grateful um, we are that we have this, this blessed hope, that we walk by faith here. This is called, I call it the Hall of Faith. And uh, these are the people that we're to emulate and look up to. And when we're tested, and you will be, I think a lot of people are being tested right now. And um, are we staying the course? Are we maintaining um, being instant in season and out of season? Even when it's very, very difficult to be on lockdown and observe all these things that are happening, how grateful we are for Good Friday. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, with all that Jesus went through, our Savior went through on the cross, it tells us in Isaiah that it pleased you to bruise your son, that he would become a sacrifice for many, not everybody. And Lord, as I'm closing in this prayer, if there's anybody watching and that they've never really understood that Jesus is the only way, he's the only one who lived the perfect life, he's the only one who could be the perfect sacrifice, He's the only one when all was said and done can cry victoriously. It is finished and the victory has been won and Satan's been defeated. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have. We thank you so much, Jesus, for your word and the comfort that it brings to us in times of difficulty and trial. So, Lord, may you receive all the praise and all the glory. We look forward to... um, uh, Easter Resurrection Sunday, and because you rose and live, your word tells us it will be with us also. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. That we had a New Testament teaching, but is it really an Old Testament picture of the cross and a picture? Well, according to Hebrews it is, because we read in Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 17 and 18, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Notice this, accounting that God was able to raise him even from the dead, from from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Well, what does that mean, figurative sense? It's another way of saying it's a picture. A picture of what? A picture of another father who would go through with it. Abraham, you've passed the test, and you've proven your love for me. But what this tells us is that Abraham understood the gospel. He understood that he was going to offer him but he would raise him from the dead. He understood the gospel that was being laid out to him. And so in this case, it was absolute certainty. This, what took place 2,000 years ago when 
the sun refused to shine and the sins of the world were placed upon Jesus. When that all happened, um, time stood still and the most amazing event in the world took place. And Abraham knew all about it, that he was doing something in a figurative sense. He was painting a picture. And so for certainty, we can say in this case, the study on the seven sayings from the cross, we have a picture of it in the Old Testament. Oh, the complexity of this book and how grateful um, we are that we have this, this blessed hope that we walk by faith here. This is called, I call it the hall of faith. And uh, these are the people that we're to emulate and look up to. And when we're tested, and you will be, I think a lot of people are being tested right now. And um, are we staying the course? Are we maintaining um, being instant in season and out of season? Even when it's very, very difficult to be on lockdown and observe all these things that are happening, how grateful we are for Good Friday. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, with all that Jesus went through, our Savior went through on the cross, it tells us in Isaiah that it pleased you to bruise your son, that he would become a sacrifice for many, not everybody. And Lord, as I'm closing in this prayer, if there's anybody watching and that they've never really understood that Jesus is the only way, he's the only one who lived the perfect life, He's the only one who could be the perfect sacrifice. He's the only one when all was said and done can cry victoriously, it is finished and the victory has been won and Satan's been defeated. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have. We thank you so much, Jesus, for your word and the comfort that it brings to us in times of difficulty and trial. So, Lord, may you receive all the praise and all the glory. We look forward to Um, uh, Easter Resurrection Sunday and because you rose and live your word tells us it will be with us also we thank you in Jesus name Amen